It is good to be back. Thank you all so much for allowing me the opportunity, now twice a year, uh, to go for a couple weeks to Ghana, West Africa. I'll be telling you a little bit more about this trip here a little bit later on. But by virtue of being in uh, Ghana for two weeks or for three Sundays, as the case has been, Our um, fall series in Isaiah, already in progress, has been delayed by a couple weeks, and we're going to pick up with that again this fall. For those of you who do not know, um, for the last several years, I don't know how long anymore, um, we have been working through Isaiah in the fall, and in the spring we've been working through Matthew. And this fall brings us into this last section of Isaiah. And we're going to be looking at the very last portion as we um, enter into this last section in which Isaiah is um, painting for us a picture of the um, culmination, the end of God's mighty works of His grace. Isaiah, as you may know, is divided into two portions. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he's establishing the fact by using the reign of Ahaz on the front end and the reign of Hezekiah on the other end to demonstrate to the Israelites what's a God to do when his people are persistently faithless. In the last half of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through the end of the book, is his answer, this is what the holy and loving God does because he is faithful in the face of our faithlessness. So uh, faced with a world insistent on waging war against God's reign, what's a God to do? We're going to walk through in this last several weeks of our time with Isaiah this section in which he explores um, the climactic conclusion of his answer to that question. So today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 66. We're going to begin reading with verse 12 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter verse 24. Isaiah chapter 66 beginning with verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream and you shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted. In Jerusalem, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. He shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the garden following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and abomination and mice, 
shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, to draw the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in leaders, on mules and on dromedaries. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. How's that for the ending of Isaiah's good word to us today? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God to us, his people, here in our day and age. So let us go to him in prayer. So, Father, we do come to this um, word that... um, We hear it with words that are wonderful and comforting and words that are unsettling and discomforting. And we recognize by faith that it is the good word, the good news of your abounding love towards us through your son, Jesus Christ. But we do not know exactly how that unfolds. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would grant us eyes to see it and ears to hear it and hearts to leap with rejoicing and marveling at it. To that end, Father, protect us from error and feast us upon your truth. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. We hear it often. We hear it from the tiniest among us to the oldest among us. You probably have said it sometime this week. That's not fair! Perhaps the teacher suddenly called out an assignment that was due the next day and she didn't tell you about it until the very end of class. That's not fair! Or like my college professor who told us about a test and then when we studied for it, we came and he failed. He did not give it to us. We thought, that's not fair after all the work we put in. It's not fair. We hear it so often. We all want life to be fair, don't we? We were made for life to be fair, which is why the cry is so common and so stubborn, because we want life to be fair. 
That's what Lewis describes, C.S. Lewis describes as a sort of stubborn inkling that we all have of a better life in a better place among better people. A fair life. A place where we fit, a place where we belong, a place that we were made for. It's a life in a place where we belong. It's what scripture calls peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. We want it in our marriages. We want it in our families. We want it in our workplaces. We want it in traffic. And by the way, just as an aside here, I just spent two weeks in Africa, and I do not care how bad traffic gets in Chattanooga. It is nowhere near as bad as it is in Ghana. And our host in Ghana told me, Dan, if you think this is bad, go to Nigeria. (laughs) There's always someone who drives worse than you. We want fair in our lives. We want it in our social relations. We want it among the races. We want it in business. We cry cry for it from our cribs. We cry for it in the streets of Washington. We want life to be fair. We demand it. We expect it. We rely upon it. And yet frequently find and more frequently imagine ourselves to have been robbed of it. Parents, take away media time. Ugh! So unfair. Teachers call us down. Unbelievable. If they only knew what he was doing. The police officer stops us for going 15 miles over the speed limit when clearly the other guy who just passed us was going 20 miles over the speed limit. It's just so unfair. I have a good friend who, when his kids cry out about fairness, responds, you want fair? I'll give you fair. And of course, we laugh. And the protests stop. Because it brings us up short. Because we realize if we actually got what we deserved, what we fairly deserved, it would not be good. And the fact is that my friend does give them fair, but it doesn't come in the way that they expect it. When considered through a biblical lens, fair turns out to be quite different than what we imagine ourselves to be demanding. What we imagine ourselves to be crying for, it is certainly not what we thought we wanted. Because you see, we have been trained. We train one another and our culture has trained us. To imagine and so expect and hanker after a life that is centered around me, my comfort, and my glory. And so fair for me is what I get, what I want. We imagine fair to be all those wonderful things that secure for me my real and imagined rights and all the privileges and comforts associated with those rights. 
But fear, it turns out, is far better than that. Is far better than we expect. Is far better than we imagine. Fear, it turns out, causes our expectations to pale in comparison. Fair, it turns out, eclipses everything we imagined fair to be and replaces it with something we cannot fathom, even in our wildest imaginations. Fair, it turns out, is a lot better than we could ever hope or imagine. Look. Paul talk, I mean Paul, Isaiah. This is the gospel according to Isaiah, not the gospel according to Paul, although we're going to refer to Paul. Verse 12. This fairness, this peace, this shalom is what, when we cry out for fair, we are actually crying out for, contrary to our wildest expectations. Behold, I will extend peace like a river. Peace, like an overflowing stream. Many of us this week have seen pictures of rivers in North Carolina bursting their banks and consuming everything in its pathway. Some of us may have family or friends there who have lost homes because of a river that was so full as to burst its banks. That's the language of overflowing stream here. That's the image that Isaiah has in mind. Isaiah has used this word before, this language of overflowing stream. He's used it in chapter 8 when he was speaking of Assyria's sudden rise to power and the, the image of Assyria flooding the nations, consuming everything in its path, including Israel. He uses it in chapter 10 to describe the comprehensive and thoroughgoing judgment of the Lord upon all of those who resist his reign and his justice. He's used it in chapter 28 to speak of his anointed and appointed one whose power and might and glory will render the glory and might and power of the earth's most feared military and political powers as meaningless as a flower of the field that fades and is gone, a mere vapor. He uses it later in chapter 28 to speak of the power of God's truth and justice and righteousness to wash away the plethora of lies and all the feeble shelters that we build to protect ourselves. And in chapter 30, he uses it to refer to the overwhelming strength of God's breath to leave entire nations trembling, quivering, whimpering in his presence. Just think of world powers today. Can you imagine what kind of breath would cause some of the world powers that we see today to whimper? The breath of the Lord. 
is this overwhelming breath. That is the language that Isaiah is using here. And it is, this is an overwhelming stream of God's peace. It is a river, if you look, verse 13 and, and moving on. You look, it is, it is a river of comfort, like a mother's comfort. We even just heard a great illustration. The power of a mother's voice in a time of profound fear. The river of God's peace is like the voice of a mother that comforts us in fear. But it is not the voice of a mother. It is the voice of God himself. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. This is no just human comfort, even extraordinary human comfort. This is the comfort of the creator, sustainer, redeemer, faithful God. And it's the comfort of being home. Verse 13, not only will it be the comfort of a mother, not only will it be the comfort that I give, but it will be the comfort that I give in my place. Where I dwell, my home, my table. It is the river of God's peace by his stunning presence. Who will be there? It is a river of the glories of the nations being brought, right? It is a river of refreshment. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. Have you ever, you know the expression, I'm bone tired? The older I get, I actually now know where that expression comes from. Because you can actually feel the fatigue in your bones. Some of you are too young to know that yet. Some of you are older and you're thinking to yourself, oh, Dan, you have no idea. <laughs> Those bones shall flourish. Those bones shall flourish and be refreshed. It's the river of nations, an overwhelming flood of immigrants being drawn into the fellowship of saints and the presence of God at his table in his city. And I don't want to go into it, but I very intentionally choose the language of a flood of immigrants from among the nations being brought into the presence of God. You see, because this river of peace is consuming not just God's stubbornly rebellious people, his chosen ones, but all those that his chosen ones have chosen to disdain, the nations. They're all being swept up in this flooding river of peace. Even those from beyond the ends of the world, even those that the chosen ones have presumed to be beyond the scope and the reach of God's steadfast and abounding covenantal love. Oh, 
You can't come into God's presence. We think. But the river of God's peace flows throughout the world and sweeps into God's presence even those that we presume to be beyond the pale. What the New Testament calls the Gentiles. What all four Gospels call sinners and tax collectors. People like you and me. And this peace, like an overflowing river, is the condition that the Bible envisions as fair. It is the result of God's acting fairly in His world toward His people for the nations. It's in the, it is a sweet condition. Doesn't it sound great? We swept up in such a river of peace. Our culture has taught us that such a condition is the result of God being nice. After all, He is the God of love, of overlooking deep and stubborn stains of our own ugliness and the ugliness of our world. After all, our culture teaches us to reason. Since God is love, it is only reasonable to expect that He would not do anything that would cause us discomfort or pain. After all, true love affirms me, and it never hurts me. Getting to this condition of fairness, this condition of peace that has just been described, our culture teaches us that it always feels good all the time for all people. And if it doesn't, our culture has taught us to believe, then it must not be from God. That part of fair that faces ugly truths about ourselves is never actually addressed by our culture. The fair that our culture has taught us to express is in fact the opposite of all that is wrong with us and our circumstances. In a me-first world, the real problem that hinders and destroys the conditions of fairness for which we long for, our culture ignores and sidesteps. Whether on the macro level or on the micro level. But brothers and sisters, please understand that such a pathway to God's peace does not exist. Such a pathway to fair does not exist. There is only one way to the peace that comes by God's fairness. It is the peace that comes by the way of God's own justice. Biblically, fair is only accomplished by looking squarely at the wrong within us and among us and around us and dealing with it definitively. We don't get to fair, in other words, by turning a blind eye to all that is wrong with us and our circumstances by, by facing it and owning it and dealing with it. This is what John is getting at when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Fair, you see, is a place or a condition that only exists on the other side of such a process. As we might say sometimes 
in the south. You can't get there from here unless you go through there. Look, God's peace is always and only secured by God's justice. Verse 15 starts with, For, for look, for behold, all of this that I've just described will be the consequence of what? It will be the consequence of God's of the Lord's coming in fire. It will be the consequence of his chariots coming like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. That doesn't sound loving or gracious or kind. It sounds terrifying. Chariots and anger and fury and flames. He's got an anger issue. Indeed. He does. But notice this. It seems uncontrolled. Look, verse 16. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. What? In all things moderation. Does he not read Calvin? All flesh. All flesh. Them, the dirty ones that deserve such fury, and me. Even me. And this is important. After all, Paul says it. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. Echoing the prophets. For after all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is against this that God's fair and loving justice is exercised. Verse 17. All flesh, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into gardens following in one in their midst. The language there of going into the gardens refers to an ancient practice among the surrounding nations, including the Canaanites in which they would go into gardens. That's where they would meet their gods. That's where they would worship their gods. That's where they would offer their sacrifices and engage in their various and sundry rituals of worship. But notice the language. Those who sanctify themselves. That's good biblical language. Those who purify themselves. That's good biblical language to go into the gardens of the false gods. You see, we have to remember that the Israelites, in their minds, they were actually doing what God commanded while pursuing the gods of the Canaanites. You see, the bent of our hearts since the days of the Garden of Eden and since the days of the promise has been, that, has been to be veritable idol factories. We're always, we're always conniving ways to substitute and supplement God's glory with our own schemes and strategies. Our own imagined wisdom and strength. Like the Israelites, we tend to worship Yahweh with the heart of the Canaanites. I think just by a generic example in our own culture of worship wars. It comes painfully, naturally to us to adopt and adapt the patterns and paradigms of worship from among the nations in our worship of Yahweh. 
We come as those who are trained to be consumers into the presence of God, thinking, what does he have for me today? What's the door prize at worship today? This is the basic structure and thrust of Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3. Whether Jew or Gentile, by whatever pattern of worship and righteousness we have sought to justify ourselves, we have all rendered ourselves guilty. All justly deserving God's wrath and displeasure. For all have sinned in this way and so fall short of the glory of God. Here's the question. How in the world do you and I escape such a thing? Can anyone escape such a thing? There's a hint of it in verse 17. By his sword, the Lord will enter into judgment by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. How is it that the sword of God's justice is brought against all, but only many are slain by it? Why are not all slain by it? And if all were slain by it, how is it that you and I sit in this room today? Verse 18 begins to give us a hint. I know their works. I know their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come. They shall see my glory. In verse 19, we See, they shall declare my glory among the nations. What is that glory? The Lord says at verse 19, beginning, I will set a sign among them. Verse 20, it says, They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. In the same way that the Israelites bring their grain offerings, the Lord himself will bring from all the nations in in various and sundry ways an offering to him. And from among those, some will actually be my priests and even Levites. What is the sign? The sign, brothers and sisters, is a new kind of people created by the cross of Jesus Christ. The people of the cross, even the unclean nations will have been cleansed to serve in the Lord's presence at the Lord's table as the Lord's priests. You see, the sign among them is the existence among them of an entirely new kind of people created in Christ by the cross of Christ. Notice, they gather from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, month after month, week after week. They are gathered in the presence of God as a sign of the life that comes to the cross. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are gathered in this place today as a sign among the nations. of the peace that comes by God's mysterious and mystifying exercise of his justice. 
as they gather, notice what happens. There's a strange way to end this. They shall see my glory. There shall be a sign among them. And then, as though anticlimactically and strangely and totally feeling out of place, you get verse 24. What is that about? They shall go out and look on dead bodies of the men who have rebelled. And they're not just dead, but they're smoldering and they're rotting. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What in the world is going on with that? And now if I were a scholar of another tradition, I might just say, well, some editor came and didn't know what to do with it, so they just tacked it on the end, and so we can dismiss it. But I'm not such a scholar. Because here's the fact. That what motors the worship of all flesh before the Lord is the stunning and mind-bending and soul-bending reality that I should be dead and smoldering and rotting. But because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ at the cross, all the wrath that I deserve has been poured fully upon Him. Amen. So that when cringing, knowing that, the, that I deserve the wrath, I stop and I look with one eye open and dare to peek, I discover that I've been sheltered in the Lamb and I've been raised to new life. That's a sign of rejoicing in a world of death. Brothers and sisters, you understand that the hope is not that we were not dead in our sins and trespasses, but that we were dead and have now been made alive. The hope of our world is not that they are guilty and justly deserving the wrath and displeasure of God, but that as such, now they can enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, the glory of God's great love, the glory of God's justice that secures for us God's peace is that it is poured upon Jesus Christ for people like you and me. The answer to the implicit riddle of Isaiah is that the fullness of God's wrath described in verses 15 and 16 and so many other places throughout the Old Testament has been poured out in its fullness upon Jesus Christ so that by faith in the grace of God's justice and the person and mighty acts of Jesus Christ alone, I am now ushered into the peace of God. I have become part of this great river of peace flowing into his presence to his very table. You see, that is gospel fairness. That is the peace of God's gospel justice. This is the good news for all men who, like me, have sinned and fall woefully short of the righteousness of God. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 when he says, O wretched man that I am who shall deliver me. There is no hope for you and me outside of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
As, as Spurgeon says it in his devotional reflections on one of the Psalms, surprising grace, thou seest me in Christ, and though in myself abhorred, thou beholdest me as wearing Christ's garments and washed in his blood, and thus I stand accepted in thy presence. I am thus continually in thy favor, continually with thee. Here is comfort for the tired and afflicted soul. Vexed with the tempest within, look at the calm without. Nevertheless, O say it with the psalmist, nevertheless, O say it in thy heart, and take the peace it gives. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. One of the shows that I enjoy watching, that Mako and I enjoy watching together, is a Netflix original. It's called Man in the High Castle. By the way, uh, because of the nature of shows today, there is no necessary endorsement of the show. But the show starts out with this very familiar song. Most of us know it, mistakenly, it turns out, as an Austrian folk tune made famous by the movie Sound of Music. In both cases, both in the Sound of Music and in Man in the High Castle, it is a tune sung as a hymn of resistance, a hymn that bears witness to the good life of another time in another place. In Sound of Music, it carries a sort of nostalgic sense. In The Man in the High Castle, it sounds eerie, as though speaking of a place that does not exist. It speaks of a different world resulting from a different history altogether. You see, the man in the high castle, the story is premised on the, on the question, what if the Axis powers had won World War II and not the Allied powers? And so in the life of the story, most of the eastern United States is part of Nazi Germany, and the western United States is part of Imperial Japan. And Edelweiss, in this context, serves as a hymn sung by the resistance of a people looking for and working for a day when the realities of another history will become the realities of the present. It's a hymn sung by those living under an oppressive and unjust regime as they look for and work for a world that's fair and a world that's just a world that's at peace. For those of you who do not know, Edelweiss, in fact, is not an Austrian folk tune, but was written in 1959 by, of all people, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Who knew that our entire culture was shaped by Rodgers and Hammerstein? But I want you to understand something. Brothers and sisters, you and I are gathered in this place to sing hymns of another world that is coming. A world of God's peace secured by the mighty acts of God's justice. We are a sign set in this valley among the nations. 
that our God reigns. And every time we sing, we sing of that reign, of that kingdom, and as citizens of that kingdom, beloved sons and daughters. And the songs that we sing shape the lives that we live. This is why we're to love one another. This is why we're to love our neighbors, even the least, the lost, and the lonely, even our enemies. Because this is what the peace of God, secured by the justice of God in Jesus Christ, looks like. That's who we are. That's the world he's making. So, Father God, we pray.